0: Now, this is water, but it looks like milk. And so it's very strange for me to drink out of it because I think I'm going to be drinking milk the moment I drink out of it. So just <laughs> I thought people would be like, man, he's drinking milk up there. We're continuing in our series of the story of God, his redemptive pursuit through Scripture. And you remember two weeks ago, we started talking about the very best in that story and that is the resurrection of jesus christ and how that gives us hope how that pushes us forward and and reveals what god's work is about and renews us last week we talked about the exodus and the fact that it sets a pattern for us of what redemption looks like that redemption is restoring a right relationship with god with ourselves with others and with place now today we go to the very first page Of the story. Well, not quite the very first page of the story, because we know before all things in eternity, God has existed with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and they have been together. They have been dancing together, they have been communicating together, they have been planning and talking about this moment that we're reading here. It's interesting, as I was thinking about creation and creation stories, and how that really works into this pursuit of redemption. I wanted to find out about a couple of other creation stories that are out there. So one creation story that I wanted to know about was the Egyptian creation story. Now that's important because Moses writes the book of Genesis, and it's not written during the Exodus, it's actually after they get through with the Exodus that Moses begins to write this. And so really, on some level, the book of Genesis is a telling of the story for the Israelite nation that was just forming. So they would understand more fully who this God who revealed his personal name to them, right? Who is in the process of, of restoring a right relationship with himself and with them, with them individually and with them as a group and giving them a place. What did they come out of? There's a reason why the exodus happened the way that it happened. Well, so one of the Egyptian myths or creation stories about is about Ra or Re, who Amon Re, who uh, self-propagated two children a son and a daughter and the son and the daughter had a relationship with one another that formed many other little gods and Ray did not like that and he cried tears and those tears formed humanity but seeing humanity he could not uh they were not uh they were ruthless and they were mean and they and so he pulled away and just became the son away from them it's quite interesting. That tears were what created humans in that particular thing. Indigenous, aboriginal people have, have a creation story here about the rainbow serpent who has all the animals that live in that belly of the rainbow serpent underground and would come up and spew them out. And some believe that wrongdoers were eaten by the rainbow serpent and then the bones were spit out to become rocks and mountains. It's a pretty amazing story. And so a lot of times people will come to Genesis and they'll look at it, those first two chapters in particular, and they try and figure out, is this just a myth? Is this a, 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 a historical telling of what took place? And there's lots of people who think about it. And today in our society, what we're really coming to is not sort of those mythological stories of creation, right? That's not what Moses, what we look at when we see it, that Moses is battling. Moses is battling those type of stories. When we come to it, we think of evolution and we think of modern science and those things. And so how does it battle against those stories? And that's all good and fine. But what I think we really see in creation's story for us today is it is a picture of God's redemption. It is a picture of what God had intended at the very beginning of time to set up you see creation is actually the original or a covenant that is made when god creates and speaks the world into existence he is creating a covenant now there's four things that are needed for a covenant to take place covenant is throughout scripture and it is always used in the context of redemption. So, I want to look at Jeremiah real quickly just to show you how God is saying this is a covenant. Jeremiah 33. Listen to verses 20 and 21, and then 25 and 26. It says, Thus says the Lord. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come to their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priest may meet my ministers. And then to 25. Thus says the Lord, If I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of the heavens and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. So what we see here that Jeremiah the prophet is saying, looking back to creation and saying, it's a covenant that God has set forth he has placed things in order and there are four things that we need to see when we look at a covenant the first one is there's always a preamble in a covenant what a preamble does is it introduces us to the one who is establishing the covenant genesis 1 is definitely a preamble to that covenant all things plants animals and persons are appointed to be covenant servants we see and to obey God's law and to be in subordination to his graceful purposes. When we read God saying, let there be light, and God saying, let there be an expanse, and God saying, let the waters under the heavens and the earth, it is a great introduction for us of who he is. So it's a preamble. The second part of a covenant is obligation. That there's a pattern that takes place. So that person who is sovereignly administering the covenant coming to others to say here's what is happening here's what my promise is to you here's what i'm bringing to you there is an obligation to that i'm going to provide for you i'm going to care for you and in turn creation will serve me that's what it says in psalm 119 91 it says all things serve the father but there are tasks that come out of creation for us to do. So the first is a preamble. The second is an obligation. The third is a mediator. There's someone who stands and represents the covenant for all those who are coming into the covenant. So creation is receiving a covenant from God here in the creation. And who stands as the mediator of that? It is Adam. We see that. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him male and female. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See, that mediator in this covenant relationship that we see in Genesis is Adam. He is there to moderate between the divine provision that affects all of creation. God says, I'm giving all of this to you, but there needs to be somebody who mediates it. The fourth thing is a declaration of blessing and curse. So there has to be those in keeping of the covenant, a blessing that happens, and If you don't keep the covenant, a curse that takes place. We see that happening a little bit later, and we're going to look at it in two weeks, about how it really unfolds for us. But it's all based on the tree of life and the tree of good and evil. The tree of life is there in the middle of the garden. It's to provide for them life and care and goodness. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God says very clearly, you cannot have the fruit from that tree. See, there, there is a blessing, living in the garden, living forever, having dominion over things, and there's a curse. There's something that you cannot do. At that moment, we know in the creation story that God is the sovereign, the one who is administering it, and that we are the recipients of that as creation. Williams, in his book, As Far as the Curse Was Found, says this, God's redemptive acts do not oppose or deny his creative intent. But they come as a restorative promise in relation to creation. Now remember last week we talked about what does this redemptive pursuit look like? That it's a pattern, right, of right relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with place. And what we see happening in the covenant of creation is God establishing what that relationship's intent is. So first, let's look at God. When we come to this place in creation where God speaks the world into existence, we see three things about him. One is that he is sovereign, that he is Lord, and that he is alone, the God, the only God, that there is no other God before him. Remember all those creation myths that Moses is trying to get rid of, that that he's fighting against? The same is true today. That when we read the book of creations, whether we read it as historical fact or as some might read it as an an analogy or or sort of a, a poem that tells us what it is, what we should be seeing here is that God is sovereign, that he is alone the God, and that he is Lord. He is the one who has dominion over all the earth. It's very clear when we read the creation story. He is the one who says, in the beginning, what? God, and only God, created heavens and earth. Then we find out who ourself is in this creation story. We find out who we are. Who are we? We're image bearers. How are we created? In the image of God that we ourselves possess not by anything that we've done not by anything that we are but because of the nature of creation itself image bearers god said let's make them in our image and we are stewards We have stepped into place because of the covenant creation that we are the mediators of that covenant. God has placed us in that place as his image bearers that we then are called to take care of creation and culture around us. That it's our job, as Jesus would say, to be salt and light, to preserve and to shine. What about others? How do we see our responsibility with those? We see that as we go on because we know that Adam is looked down upon by God and said it is not good for man to be by himself. And so he puts Adam to sleep and he creates Eve out of a a bone from his side and joins them together. And so that we are built in this covenant of creation to relate to one another in a loving and responsible way that we move towards one another, that we actually are incomplete without others. It's interesting that science is catching up with this now. When they talk about addiction and why addiction happens, they look at brain chemistry, they look at uh, body chemistry, they'll look at the fact that those things adjust and change the way that you feel that you might get addicted to, whether it be sugar in your pop or whether it be some hard drug. But one of the key things that they're beginning to discover is that loneliness is one of the key factors of addiction. Why? Because in the covenant of creation, we were created for one another. That the right relationship with others where we are loving and responsible for one another. And then the last thing, place. What does God say when he creates the world on those days, at the end of each day? What does he say? It is good. creates man, he says, it's very good. It is good. And so in the original creation covenant, what we discover about this place that we are, this place, quite honestly, that we will sometimes look at and say is dirty and downtrodden and evil, and is good it has not lost that perspective it has not lost that truth about itself that in creation in that covenant as God was moving forward he created the earth to be good and so that requires us to look and seek that which is good We run after it so that we can care for it and cultivate it and maintain it. And we know ultimately that it's all held together by God because he is the sovereign and minister of this covenant. Calvin put it this way. If God should but withdraw his hand a little, all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing that regardless of what the world thinks or regardless of what even our hearts might lead us to live like, it is God that is holding all of creation together for his good and magnificent person and purpose. So we see in creation this, God's redemptive pursuit, because what we see him is establishing an order of relationship that we have with him, with ourselves, with others, and with place. So, so what? It's a great story. Could be one of the many myths that are out there. What does it do for us then, today, as we sit here in 2016, what does it do for us today when we step into an understanding of God's working in creation, showing us what his redemption is? How does it cause us to live differently? Andy Krauss wrote a book called Culture Making. And he says this, the picture we find in Genesis of Humanity is of this, cultural cultivators. Cultural cultivators. He says, culture is what we make of the world. Culture is, first of all, the name of our relentless and restless human effort to take the world as it is given to us and to make something of it. So when we begin to think about creation, it is an establishment of culture, a culture of white, right relationships. And then how does that play out for us? He goes on to point out four things. Creation is, is bringing being out of nothing now we know that's true with God that he brings the earth out of nothing that it was formless and void but it is true as we walk in as cultural cultivators when we walk into that place we bring something out of nothing Now, we have raw materials, and we might create things, or we have raw materials within the relationships that we have. But ultimately, what we are doing is taking what has been given to us, which seemingly has no purpose or no direction, and we're moving it into a direction and a place. So creation brings being out of nothing. The second thing that it does is creation is relational. Interesting, right? That we're created for each other, it is relational, Human creativity, then, imagines God's creativity when it emerges from a lively, loving community of persons. Perhaps more importantly, when it participates in unlocking the full potential of what has gone before as we look at creation and creating possibilities of what is to come later. Remember, we talked a couple of weeks ago about being ancient future with having hope today we know that as we are working as creative and cultural cultivators that we are grabbing all the promises of God all of what God has done before pressing forward to what God is doing ultimately by calling us home to himself and having hope in the here and now because of it that's what the resurrection does the ultimate ancient future so creation is relational Creation also requires cultivation. If we just let things go, your life, your garden, your house, your car, your relationships, do they get better or do they get worse? Culture then requires and creation requires us to cultivate it to care for it, to look after it. And ultimately, creation leads to celebration. We know that all creation sings the praises of our Father. And we do as well. Because as we create, we are celebrating that which God instituted at the beginning, the foundation of the world. When he said, let us make man. How beautiful it is that we are part of it talking about culture and thinking about culture makes us go well how do we how do we sort of wrestle with it because sometimes it looks like creation that's going on now is awfully against what God would want and I would agree. Niebuhr wrote a book called Christ and Culture and he says there are a couple of options about how we deal with this. The first one is Christ against culture that looks at culture and says all culture is bad and Christ is good and so Christ is coming to punish the disobedience of culture. A second way that he looks at it is Christ of culture that we look at Christ and see that culture influences how we view Christ and who Christ is, and we're getting progressively better in our thoughts, and we're growing in our knowledge and abounding in all wisdom, and so we adopt culture and we make Christ begin to look like culture. I mean, because we want to open ourselves up and we want to make sure everybody's okay. Or Christ above culture, which really sort of builds a paradox of dualism that says, The world is here and Christ is here and never the twain shall meet. And so in my life, I compartmentalize the things that are of the world and the things that are of God. And so work is of the world, but worship is of God. And then last, he says, we should look as Christ as transformer. That Christ steps in to our place of cultural cultivating And he wants to transform it. Now, as you read books about culture and transforming and church growth and all sorts of things like that, they always talk about the fact that we want to change the world. We want to change the world. We want to change the world. What tends to happen is as we begin that refrain, we look at it and say, and this is how it should be changed. And we'll base it up on our own interpretations and our own desires and what we would feel most comfortable with what Niebuhr is saying is that really Christ is the converter of culture. That in it, Christ brings culture back or creation back to its intended purpose. Where there's a right relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with place. maybe it's best to put it this way for us here in our gathering that a distinctive that that i hope that we will have is this that we believe the creator god is glorified as his creation i.e man and women create and care for creation and culture Let, let me repeat that we believe that the creator god is glorified as his creation, men and women, create and care for creation and culture. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is we have to live lives that really perceive the image of God in everyone that we encounter. That there is no one, no one that does not possess the image of God. Whether they look just like us or whether they are completely opposite of us. And wait, I know there's a pushback there. But well, we're redeemed. And they're not. How can they have the image of God? It is but by the grace of God that I'm redeemed. Remember, creation was good and is good. And so we still maintain It's not put in the right relationship until we encounter Christ, but we still have it. And so that means that all of our efforts should be about understanding and living and moving and breathing with those that God puts in our life. That we see them as valuable, not because they are prospective followers or members of the church, but just by the simple fact that they possess the image of God in them. By having a right relationship with them, I am giving glory and honor to God. The second thing that we need to do is we need to make sure that we care for culture. That's the environments. that's the expression of culture that happens through arts, through music, through cooking, <laughs> through spreadsheets. Did you know that's an expression of culture, spreadsheets? In 1969, there were no such things as computer spreadsheets. Everything was written out on pieces of paper. But in 1969, they created the first ever spreadsheet that would fit on mainframe computers. It wasn't until 1979 that Visical came around and Apple II kind of said, we're going to take that and it's going to be our thing. And it was their app that made Apple, Apple. And it was a spreadsheet. Listen, that is creative, Is all get it. I don't understand them at all. <laughs> don't know how to work them. But that's creation. And so in those expressions, we should care for them. And we care for the people who are doing that work. Because we know what they are about is about what God had intended from the very beginning. A cultivation of culture. The third thing that I think that we can do to be people who recognize that God is glorified when his creation, men and women, create and care for culture and creation is this. We need to pursue beauty. We need to be about pursuing beauty. Now, I understand that that can be subjective and beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But understand, when I say we need to be about pursuing beauty, it's when we look to find things that bring glory to God and establish his truth of who he is. There are things that would not be very beautiful in our eyes that show us the truth of who God is. Sometimes a movie that has seemingly no redemptive qualities that might just be about the fallenness of man points out the fallenness of man, which is the truth. It is good for us to recognize that there is truth there. It doesn't mean that we promote it or we show it in the church. But it does mean that we need to pursue it and understand it and know that God can be glorified in it. The fourth thing that we can do is we need to participate in its order. Creation gives us this beautiful picture of order and beauty. See, it wasn't by happenstance that creation took place. It wasn't a cosmic mistake that made it happen. It was a sovereign God wanting to establish a people that he could be their God and they could be his people, and he established them through creation. And he did it in an orderly way. And so we need to participate in the order of creation. That means that there are things that we look at and we say, this helps us to be orderly, it can't be all chaotic. One of the things that helps me and my family in that orderly sort of participation is the catechism. The Westminster Catechism helps us. It doesn't go beyond the Bible. It actually stands on the Bible. It takes all its references from it, but it's very orderly. Question number one of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you ask any of my children that they would know it because it helps us to participate in the order of creation it reminds us that god is sovereign and holy that he is true that he created in a covenant for us so since we are people of the redemptive pursuit we understand that we can only see this answer in christ alone John 1 reminds us that all things were made through Christ. Hebrews 1.3 says this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the, mas- uh, of the majesty on high. Colossians 1, 15 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him... All things hold together. Kuiper says this, There is not a square inch in all of the dominion of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. We as people of the redemptive pursuit... Come to this place of understanding, of acceptance, of holding on to the creation covenant only through Jesus Christ, who in fact is holding all creation together now for all people who bear God's image. Schaefer said this, Francis Schaefer, and the purpose of our creation in which all of our subsidiary purposes fit. So we've got lots of purposes. <laughs> is to be in a personal relationship to God, in communion with Him, in love by choice, the creature before the Creator. Our purpose in all of creation is to be in a loving communion relationship, the creature to the Creator. That is only done through Jesus Christ. February of 2015, here in Perth, there was a three-day event that took place. The giants were coming. Do you remember the giants? It was a deep-sea diver and a little girl, massive puppets that walked all through the CBD that landed at a big, huge esplanade area that had a big, huge sort of celebration. I happened to be in Perth on that day. I happened to be along the gate watching them come in and then just a day later they were on barges that floated down the Swan River and actually were just right outside of Fremantle sitting resting before they prepared to go back to France where they were from now that was a lot of money to bring them here and there were some people who probably looked at that and said I think we could have spent our money in better ways But over 100,000 people sat in a park and watched the story of a man and a little girl being reunited, being brought back together. And care was shown between two giant puppets, marionettes. We are cultivators of culture. Everything that we do should sing his praise and his truth. We long to be a place that we know the creator God is glorified when his creation creates and cares for creation and culture. We only do that through Jesus Christ. It tells the story. When we go back to the purpose of creation, it tells the story of redemption this is how it is supposed to be let's pray father god you are good to us you have created us for yourself and we are yours let us hold tight to that let us know for sure that that is who we are because of your goodness and what you have done for us father let us be cultivators and carers of creation and culture It's in your name we pray, Jesus, by which this is all possible. Amen.